0: This episode of Wasteland may contain mature themes, profanity, and descriptions of sex, graphic violence, and criminal activity. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, listeners. Since I scripted the initial episodes of Wasteland more than a few years ago, I thought it would be a good idea to revisit some of them, now that some time has passed. COVID put a halt to nearly everything in our lives, and the already slow wheels of justice were no different. Some of these cases may have already reached their conclusions if not for the pandemic. Nevertheless, it was interesting going through some of the documents and articles I was able to obtain to find out just what has changed with some of the more reprehensible people I covered during Season 1. This addendum is an addition to the re-release season along with a few other episodes. I wanted to correct some of the audio issues as well as add to the episode count, Of course, Wasteland Season 2 is already in the works, and I would like to thank two of my best friends and oldest bandmates, Matt Fisher and Shane Spiker, for giving me the motivation I needed to expand the show beyond just the one season. In that vein, I wanted to let you know that I have a multi-episode special in the works. It's something that will stand alone between both seasons or perhaps after. It's a sprawling story, and I'm excited to share it with you, but I want it to be perfect before it's released. I'm hoping for Christmas of 2022. And now, I hope you'll allow me to take you back to that place. The one that I know so well. That place that shines like a diamond in the blistering sun. But underneath, well, underneath, it's something else. We begin with the case of Austin Haruff, covered in episode 5, The Happy Boy. On August fifteenth, 2016, the 19-year-old FSU student inexplicably walked into the comfy garage hangout of John Stevens and Michelle Mishkan in Jupiter, Florida, and brutally murdered them. But this was no ordinary home invasion. Austin beat Michelle Mishkan to death, which was horrific enough. However, Austin not only stabbed John Stevens viciously in his side, slitting his armpit to his waist with a small pocket knife, he then proceeded to repeatedly bite his victim's face. It took two officers as well as a canine unit to pry Austin loose from John Stevens. Conveniently for Austin, he would not have to deal with the consequences of his actions just yet. During the melee, he had ingested some caustic chemicals in John and Michelle's garage, which caused him to slip into a coma. Initially, the cause of Austin's ferocious behavior was attributed to drugs, specifically synthetic drugs, the same type of substance said to be responsible for a similar face-biting attack in Miami back in 2012. But synthetic drugs are notoriously difficult to pinpoint, as the criminals who concoct them use hundreds of different chemical compounds in their recipes. Experts have referred to accurate detection of synthetic drugs as akin to hitting a moving target. Austin awoke from his coma 11 days after committing the murders of John Stevens and Michelle Mishkon to find that his deed was the subject of national attention. Austin's father, Wade Haruff, appeared on the Dr. Phil show in early September to speak for and humanize his son, who the media were now referring to as the frat boy cannibal. It's a title that shows less respect for the victims than it does for Austin. Austin himself appeared on Dr. Phil shortly after his father and professed that he didn't know why he committed the murders. But a quick Google search will generate Austin's internet search records and his texts, which depict him as a person losing his grip on reality. Many articles written during August and September of 2016 attempt to decipher Austin's strange curiosities about centaurs sleep deprivation, his hearing of voices, and his claims of being followed by shadow people. The media also produced plenty of accounts from Austin's friends and family to corroborate the fact that the young man was disturbed and exhibiting strange behavior in the weeks leading up to the attack. In December of 2017, Austin's lawyers filed a notice of intent for an insanity defense, understandably to the chagrin of Michelle Mishkan's family, who have stated they intend to pursue Austin with a civil suit if the state of Florida fails to convict him. To establish that someone is insane during the commission of a crime, the defendant's counsel must secure the professional opinion of a qualified psychologist which they found in Dr. Gregory C. Landrum, a clinical and forensic psychologist practicing in Hobie Sound, Florida. As of February 18, 2020, Dr. Landrum delivered his report on Austin, which is available for public viewing. The report begins with some run-of-the-mill information, establishing that Austin has battled a history of depression throughout his young life, starting in middle school when he was made to feel insecure. He believes the depression worsened by the time he reached college. Austin describes his mood often swinging from hopeful to overwhelmed, losing interest in things, and feeling lonely. Of course, this could probably be said about almost every college student in the country, But Austin harbored other feelings, too. He told Dr. Landrum that he wanted to, quote, create his own meaning, and that he was on a, quote, quest to be important. As detailed in Episode 6, a head injury can often do permanent damage to someone's frontal lobe, resulting in a loss of impulse control. Many killers can point to a head injury in their past, but Austin was unable to recall a time he suffered a blow to the head that left him unconscious. However, during his high school football and wrestling career, Austin did admit that he had been hit hard enough to have, quote, seen stars a couple of times. Austin also admitted to using marijuana, as well as other substances like LSD and mushrooms, though he said that the hallucinogens never seemed to work. He also experimented with Adderall, Vivans, and cocaine. Austin told Dr. Landrum that he flushed all the drugs in his possession on August 12th, 2016, three days before he murdered John Stevens and Michelle Mishkan. He even texted his mother to say, I quit doing every drug, and that the drugs made him, quote, vulnerable to evil. In fact, this focus on evil and its effects was something Austin seemed particularly concerned with. At the time of the report's publishing, February of 2020, Austin explained to Dr. Landrum that he was experiencing a depression based on faith, and the struggle was like going through quote, spiritual warfare. In the months prior to the attack, Austin's mood swings seemed to become more drastic. When he was up, he would feel a sense of grandiosity and heightened self-importance. When he was down, he would experience anhedonia, or the inability to feel pleasure. At certain times, he believed he could hear the voice of God, and at others, he felt he was being plagued by a demonic presence. This wasn't the first time Austin had felt plagued by demons. In high school, he experienced sleep paralysis and believed a demon was standing over him, preventing him from moving. About six weeks before the murders, Austin secured a job as an assistant at a dental practice in Palm Beach County. On August 12th, the same day he disposed of his drugs, Austin reported feeling an overwhelming positivity at work, even going so far as to bless the dental instruments by pouring water over them. He described feeling like, quote, Jesus at work, and he believed he had special abilities. He even became emotional when discovering that he and one of the patients shared the same birthday. But as was the case with Austin, his good mood shortly rebounded back into depression and unease. Later, on the night of the 12th, Austin stayed over at a friend's house, but he couldn't fall asleep as he began to feel paranoid. The next day, Saturday the 13th, Austin continued to hear what he described as God speaking to him he also started to feel a special connection with animals. One incident worth noting from that day occurred when Austin suddenly felt he needed to get to a safe place. When he was satisfied that he had found such a place, though Dr. Landrum's report is not specific as to the nature of this place, Austin was given a ride by an unidentified individual. This person was driving a Dodge pickup, and during the ride, Austin felt that the Dodge Ram symbol was, quote, like the devil looking at him. That night, his paranoia continued to rise, and he slept in his sister's room with his dog for added protection. The day before the murders, Sunday the 14th, Austin was walking his dog and began to feel as if he was being given strength and agility by, quote, dog spirits. So, he began to run, feeling as he describes it, like a quote, half-dog, half-person. Austin also developed the belief that he were to eat a snake, it would give him power over the devil. On August 15th, the day of the murders, when Austin got dressed for the day, he put on a Michael Vick jersey, believing the dog spirits wanted him to do so, and that this choice of clothing would make him invincible. Vic, of course played quarterback for the atlanta falcons until his nfl career was cut short due to his involvement in a dogfighting ring at approximately 8 40 p.m austin got up from a dinner he was having with his father wade and his father's girlfriend carrie at duffy's sports grill in jupiter his father had been growing exasperated by austin's strange behavior and the two had almost come to blows When Austin left the restaurant, he walked three miles to his mother's house, where he poured Wesson cooking oil and Parmesan cheese into a bowl and ate the mixture. Austin claims not to remember this at all, instead saying that while still at the restaurant, he felt like time was standing still and that he had become, quote, the Grim Reaper. All Austin claims to remember from that night is that he left the restaurant and, quote, followed the stars, to his father's home while a voice in his head repeated the phrase, I am sin, I am in control. It was during this fugue that Austin believes he saw a female figure with a white face, clad in black, standing in an area of light. Austin recalled holding a machete in his hand and stabbing this frightening figure, perceiving her to be, quote, covered in darkness. Then he saw a man who glowed white whom he also stabbed. Austin remembers drinking something, holding the machete between his teeth, and biting. He said that he felt like he was a dog. After this, Austin blacked out and regained consciousness ten days later in the hospital. It is indeed a harrowing thing to hear what one can only assume is a truthful account of the grisly murders of John Stevens and Michelle Mishkan, at least as Austin remembers them. Of course, there was no machete. Austin had a pocket knife, though this smaller implement turned out to be no less deadly. Of course, the woman in black was Michelle and the man who glowed white was John. And that area of light that Austin found them in was the couple's converted garage hangout, what they referred to affectionately as their garage mahal. On the last page of the report, Dr. Landrum writes... It is recommended that if the court finds that Mr. Haruff meets the criteria for legal insanity at the time of the offense, consideration should be given to his involuntary commitment to a secure forensic state hospital, as he has a mental illness, and because of the illness, is manifestly dangerous to himself or others. It is further recommended that the court retain jurisdiction over Mr. Haruff and govern any movement within the DCF with regard to placement, particularly if consideration is being given to a step-down facility or program. As of this recording, there has been no official ruling on Austin's sanity. His trial is set to begin in the spring of 2022. Episode 6 of Wasteland, Darkness on the Edge of Town, told the story of a serial killer named Gary Hilton who was convicted of four murders, that of Cheryl Dunlap in Tallahassee, Florida, Meredith Emerson in Georgia, and John and Irene Bryant in North Carolina. Gary was a transient, and he lived out of his van accompanied only by his dog, Dandy. Gary committed his crimes in the relative solitude of state parks, dismembering his victims after killing them to avoid or delay identification. After his arrest, Gary was eventually given a life sentence in Georgia, a second life sentence in North Carolina, and in Florida, naturally, Gary was given the death penalty in 2011. By 2019, Gary had exhausted his appeals, his latest for ineffective counsel, and the Supreme Court of Florida upheld his death sentence. Now, Gary will have to appeal at the federal level if he wants to save himself, though the prospects aren't looking too promising. At the time of my original recording, I was unaware that Gary Hilton has been named as a suspect in three other crimes. The 1997 disappearance of Judy Smith, a Boston nurse whose remains were discovered in Pisgah National Forest in North Carolina, the 1998 disappearance of Jason Knapp, a Clemson University student, Who went missing in South Carolina's Table Rock State Park, and the 2005 disappearance of Miami native Rosanna Miliani, last seen in Bryson City, North Carolina. In the cases of Judy Smith and Jason Knapp, the connection to Hilton appears a bit dubious, but in the case of Rosanna Miliani, who went missing on or around December 7, 2005, the link to Hilton is a bit stronger. Rosanna was in the Bryson City area to hike, and on December 7th, she entered a general store accompanied by a white man in his 60s. According to the clerk, Rosanna appeared nervous. The man allegedly told the clerk that he was a traveling preacher. Then the two purchased a backpack and left. When Hilton was arrested three years later, on January 5th, 2008, that store clerk phoned authorities, believing the preacher from 2005 to be Hilton. Unfortunately, nothing else has surfaced in the Miliani case, so it looks no closer to being solved now than it did in 2005. And if Gary Hilton knows anything, he isn't saying. But as I detailed in episode 6, there may be a break in the case of Michael Scott Lewis, a fourth murder that Gary Hilton was suspected of. The twist in episode 6, if you'll pardon me for calling it that, was that Gary Hilton is most likely not to blame for the death of Michael Scott Lewis. Instead, the perpetrator could be a 70-year-old woman named Nelsie Tetley. Tetley would have been about 56 when she was dating the 27-year-old Lewis back in 2007. Lewis's remains were found on December 6th, 2007 in Tomoka State Park near Ormond Beach, Florida, but there was never an ironclad suspect, or at least the identity of this person wasn't released to the general public. I don't know if Tetley was questioned in Lewis's murder, but I do remember hearing that Lewis had been dating an older woman. As I also detailed in episode 6, I wasn't friends with Mike Lewis, but I did go to high school with him. I also knew some of his friends, so when the rumor mill began to turn after his death, I wasn't immune from speculating. There were some truly outlandish guesses as to how Mike befell his fate, one of them being that the singer of a local death metal band had killed him. Somewhere along the way, the older woman theory gained a bit of traction among my friend's circle though it was muddled by the claim that said older woman was married to a violent Chechenian mobster who was in the witness protection program up in Palm Coast. And after Joey Calco's infamous calzone brawl, detailed in episode 8, it seemed somewhat plausible that Mike had run afoul of someone truly dangerous. Still, I never heard Tetley's name mentioned. But when the dismembered remains of 55-year-old Jeffrey Albertsman were found on July 26th, 2017 just under 10 years after mike lewis's discovery nelsie tetley was immediately considered a suspect in both murders tetley had been dating albertsman at the time of his death and unfortunately the state of his body upon discovery was no less gruesome than what was left of michael scott lewis albertsman was found in his home on north street in daytona beach According to the police report, which is now readily available online, Albertsman was found face down, having suffered two gunshot wounds, one to the chest and one to the head. His arms were missing from the elbows down, and his legs had also been removed, both post mortem. These dismembered appendages were found at a De Leon Springs fernery on September 20th, almost two months after the initial discovery. The police report doesn't shed much new light on either the case of Albertsman or Lewis, but it does contain some interesting information that was unavailable at the time of my original recording. During that episode, I detailed the abuse that was present in Tetley and Albertsman's relationship, with Tetley being the aggressor, but a few new details really do paint a better picture. On October 20th, 2016, Tetley was arrested and charged with domestic battery against Albertsman. He stated that Tetley told him, I could kill you tonight if I wanted. Tetley received 11 months of probation for the offense, but it didn't stop her from continually making threats against Albertsman. The following night, Albertsman provided police with a sworn statement and a video of Tetley lashing out at him, slapping him, and threatening his life. Unfortunately, it seems that Albertsman had rekindled his relationship with Tetley by the summer of 2017, however short-lived it may have been. Two days after the discovery of his body, on July 28, 2017, detectives interviewed Albertsman's neighbor who described an encounter with Tetley. Almost a week prior to the discovery, Tetley told the neighbor, Jeffrey's gone. He went to New York. He has a new girlfriend. He's gone. He's not coming back. Another neighbor told police that Miss Tetley stalked that man, and that Tetley would sometimes park her car across or down the street from Albertsman's home to keep an eye on him. Of course, Albertsman's phone records were scrutinized, and it was determined that his last outgoing call took place at approximately 8.39 p.m. on July 13, 2017. Tetley was even seen by neighbors entering and exiting Albertsman's house several times between July 14th and July 26th. On October 4th, 2017, the police also spoke with Kim Lewis, Mike Lewis's sister. She told detectives how Mike's entire demeanor changed when he began his relationship with Tetley, uncharacteristically avoiding his friends and family, often worried about Tetley's explosive temper. Apparently, Lewis would occasionally borrow her car, and if he didn't get it back to her on time, Tetley would become furious. Tetley's apartment was searched after the discovery of Albertsman's body, but nothing of value in either case was immediately found. Detectives questioned Tetley if she had ever known anyone who had been murdered, to which she responded, no. When the subject of Mike Lewis was brought up, Tetley simply said, the guy died. The processing of Albertsman's remains was undertaken by the University of Florida's C.A. Pound Human Identification Laboratory, or CAFIL, the same lab that received Lewis in 2008. CAFIL compared both sets of remains and found that a similar approach was used in the dismembering of both bodies. They concluded that, quote, an association between Michael Lewis's and Jeffrey Albertsman's dismemberment cannot be excluded. Furthermore, DNA swabs taken from the bathroom sink of Nelsie Tetley's residence indicate a DNA mixture consistent with two donors, one of whom was definitely male and one that needed identification. According to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, that unidentified signature was eventually determined to be 3.5 billion times more likely to be that of Nelsie Tetley than anyone else. This revelation would, of course, only solidify her murdering of Albertsman. Still, the similarity in both dismemberments is a promising lead, one which will hopefully see Tetley finally pay for both horrific crimes. As of this recording, Nelsie Tetley is still awaiting trial, having pled not guilty to the murder of Jeffrey Albertsman. And that brings us to the end of this update, listeners. Wasteland will be continuing in 2022, and I have a long list of potential episodes for the next season. And there's that big special I spoke about that I can't wait to share with you. I'll also be keeping an eye on developments in the cases I've already covered, Nelsie Tetley's especially. To keep apprised of what's coming next for Wasteland, follow me at WastelandPod on Instagram. I'm not much for social media, but I will be updating periodically. Also, if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends. I want to thank you for listening. Until next time.